This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, my name is Jody, and I am with the Dads from the Crypt podcast. And it is my honor today to get to introduce Mr. Gil Adler and A.L. Katz, the producers, directors of Bordello of Blood, uh, longtime Tales from the Crypt producers. And they're going to tell you... uh, this wonderful podcast, How Not to Make a Movie, that is all about the trial and tribulation of making Bordello of Blood. And uh, they're going to fill you in, and then we're going to open up the floor for questions. So, uh, Alan, it's yours. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. I'm Gil Adler. In order to understand Bordello of Blood, you have to understand the story of Tales from the Crypt. And the thing about doing Tales from the Crypt was that it was capturing lightning in a bottle. Hey, it's the reason you're all here today. Why Tales from the Crypt? I don't know why it still exists in everyone's sensibility. Is because it, 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 was, it was special, it was unique, and nothing quite like it had ever happened before. And we didn't know about it for years later. Yeah. It's the kind of thing when you capture lightning in a bottle creatively, you kind of, we kind of felt it at the time, but you, you really don't know that you had lightning in a bottle until years, hell, a whole career afterwards, and you look back and you realize, that was special. That was unlike anything else that I ever did. Now, the thing about Bordello of Blood is that Bordello of Blood was the antithesis, creatively, of what doing Tales from the Crypt was like. And as we'll, as we'll lay out in, in the, the moments ahead, Bordello of Blood, it was a catastrophe. It was the end of our relationship as friends and our relationship creatively. And shortly thereafter, we parted ways and we didn't talk to each other for two decades more. And then we did a podcast. I suddenly had... I decided I needed to do a podcast about the making of Bordello of Blood, and I couldn't do it without him. So he called me up, and he said, we should do this. And I said, Alan, do you remember the pain? I remember the pain. It was a lot of pain. I don't think I want to relive that pain. And he said... We have to. <laughs> it's, it's the only way to do it. Now, the irony is that everything that Bordello of Blood wrecked, Doing the podcast about it, the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, kind of put back together again. And in addition to becoming friends again, we're also working together again. And one thing we'll also talk about towards the end of this is we're trying to capture lightning in a bottle one more time, and I think we're about to do it. But we'll talk about that later. First things first, now that we've dangled something in front of you all, here's the carrot, everybody. Not Bordello. Now, you're going back to Bordello? (laughs) so the thing about Bordello of Blood is that it was never supposed to be the original deal let's let's, let's go back in time the reason that there even was a Bordello of Blood why there was a demon knight and we have a great prop from Demon Knight an amazing prop, Demon Knight was a terrific movie so isn't that cool this is, this is, this is what, what uh, who, who made this? Uh, Brendan Scott Murphy. Brendan Scott Murphy. This is a piece of, of, of fan art. Now, is that, is that supposedly Demon Knight, or is that supposed to be what I look like now? 
Ah, I see. Good. When Gil and I went aboard Tales from the Crypt, we did not create the show. It was in existence for the first season was six episodes. The second was about 18 episodes. And at the end of the second season, the, the producers had gone a million dollars over budget. And the night before the wrap party, the executive producers were handed a financial statement that said, hey, you're a million dollars in cash. Get out your checkbooks, everybody. So they, they canceled the wrap party. They fired everybody. As one does when you're submitting a bill for a million dollars to those guys. And HBO canceled the show. But, but they had one more season that they were obligated to, and so they, they had to bring, the, the, they hired a producer who they trusted to, to handle the money for that last third season, and that was Gil. Oh, I thought that was someone we never met because they killed him, <laughs> and then we came in. Gil, uh, Gil was very trusted by HBO because he had produced a couple of shows for them. Gil had produced a show called The Hitchhiker for them. A long time ago. Right. And then we did a, a show in Savannah, Georgia called... Uh, uh, Vietnam War Stories. Vietnam War Stories, yeah. And Vietnam War Stories had a, a problem. They were deep in, in financial difficulties. And, and so Chris Albrecht, who was running HBO at the time, he got Gil on the phone and said, I need you to go to Savannah and, and, and deal with this. And so, yeah, and in a matter of time, not only did, did they get the budget under control, but he won a couple of awards. He won a couple of awards, yeah. yeah. Only he called me on a Sunday... And I thought he was inviting me out to brunch. He said, I, let's go to, I need you to go to Savannah. And I thought that was a restaurant in L.A., and he was inviting me to... And I said, where am I going? Savannah. You mean Georgia? Yeah, I need you to go on a plane today. And so I got on a plane that day. But he failed to tell everybody in Savannah that I was the new producer taking over the show. So they thought I was an executive from HBO coming down. Just another schmuck. And they didn't have any clue why I was there until I told them. And then they, they were like, no, you're not taking over the show. Get out of here. And I had to have HBO on the following day, which was Monday, call them and say, no, you get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, we took over that show and it won a bunch of awards. And so we came in to tell us from the crypt, and they, they called us in, and they said, well... Now, that, that wasn't we, that was just you and Savannah. You, you, that, was, yeah. that was you. Now, yeah. because Gil is Gil's a remarkable producer. He is, he is one of the best producers in the whole business, because he knows, you know, it's, it's very basic. If you've got a dollar to spend, you cannot spend a dollar one. If you can do it for 99 cents, that's even better, at the same quality as a buck. That's the key to being a great producer. Uh, they had this terrible problem with Tales from the Crypt. It was going to run. They had one more season they were obligated to, and that was it. And so they hired Gil, and I was Gil's writing partner. We had worked on a bunch of projects together, and so Gil insisted that if he was going to do the show, then I had to come aboard too. And the only reason that I got Tales from the Crypt is because he insisted. And, and speaking the way he's speaking today, he's also my, my new agent. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know about it yet, but... But when Gil and I took over Tales from the Crypt at the beginning of the third season, it was supposed to be it. But when Gil and I got the gig, there were two things that we wanted to do. And one was to really take the show back to its, to its roots, to the, hey, I was a fan of the EC comics when I was a kid. I, 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 I had those things under my covers. I loved, and Mad Magazine, Bill Gaines' world, I loved. Um, and the other thing that we, we thought the show needed to, to reinvest in was the Crypt Keeper. Up to that point, through the first 24 episodes, he pretty much sits in the same outfit, on the same set, and says pretty much the same stuff. And very dimly lit, and not very accessible, 
And we had a whole different take on that. Our question was, well, okay, but what does the Crypt Keeper do when he's not being the Crypt Keeper? At the end of the day, when he punches out like everybody else and he goes home. What does he do? What does he like to do? What does he like to eat? What does he like to watch on TV? Who are his friends and loved ones? And that, I think, more than anything, helped make the franchise the franchise. Because also the tell you how weird we are in terms of thinking. Oh, <laughs> but hey, if, his friends. But the thing is, if you're going to do a TV show, you have to think at it, think of it on a completely cellular level. You have to go deeper than anyone wants to go. You have to understand, well, why are you making this show? Why would any one of you want to watch this show? We have to be so specific in our minds about why, what it is that we're putting out on the table for, for your consumption. We were, very, we were always very clear. You know, to us, Tales was horror, but much more black comedy. And the Crypt Keeper was, was the proof. The Crypt Keeper, he's the epitome of black comedy. It's, look at what he's laughing at. And he was the key for us. If we get him right, uh, and if, we, if we're dedicated to what Bill Gaines created with his dad in the 50s in the comic books, and yet put a contemporary spin on that story, we thought we would have success. And that's what we did. We, yeah. we, we took the comic books and we told Bill um, two things. One, we said, look, we have a lot of partners. We have HBO. We only care what you think about the script. So if we write scripts, we're going to show them to you first, not HBO, not our partners. And if you don't like them... Screw all that. If you don't like them, we're going to throw it away. We're not going to argue about it and, and say, try to convince you. We're going to rewrite it. And the most important thing for us is that you love the show because you created the show originally. Secondly, we said um, to the partners, the, the Crypt Keeper is, is in a dark shroud. You, you light him very dimly and he, he's not accessible. He's not we, fun. We want him to be accessible. And so we want the audience to look forward to the Crypt Keeper introducing the show and telling you at the end of the show, it's okay. You don't have to look under your bed. It's okay to turn out the light and go to sleep. Nothing's going to happen. Maybe. <clears throat> what? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that, that was part of that. And then the third thing we told them uh, was that we wanted to use stars. And they said, well, HBO is not going to give you money for stars. We pay scale plus 10. And we said, we will get stars. We think this material will attract stars. And we'll go from there. And they thought we were crazy. And, and Joel Silver, one of the partners, brought me into an office, his office and he, he, he never would sit down. He, was, he would pace. He would pace back and forth and back and forth. I'd get a stiff neck talking to him. And we would talk about the Tales from the Crypt. And he'd say, you know, every day you have to shoot five pages. Every day, and it's got to look like a motion picture. It can't look like television. Now, I, we had just come off of a show called Freddy's Nightmares, uh, which we did for uh, Lorimar and, uh, and New Line Cinema. Yeah. And in that show, we had a very low budget, and we sh were shooting 10 pages a day. And after five days of shooting, we finished an episode on day six. Usually you have a day or two to write. No, we had to shoot the next episode. So we shot 22 hours back to back to back to back. And so when Joel said to me, you have to shoot five pages a day, day in and day out, every day, I looked at him and I said, what do we do after lunch? Because <laughs> I had been shooting 10 pages a day. And, and we had an argument about that. But that ended in him saying, you know, go, go do it. Go do what you want to do. What, made, what also made Tales from the Crypt lightning in a bottle was at that time TV was over here and features were way the fuck over there. These worlds had nothing to do with each other. 
There was some occasional crossover with Tom Hanks, a Robin Williams, who would go from TV into features, but nobody went from features into TV. If you were going from features into TV, that meant your career was heading down the toilet. So when HBO at that time had a couple of TV series, they had First and Ten, and they had uh, what was Brian Ben Ben's show. And, but these Dream on. Dream on, thank you, thank you. These were Dream on, but these were you know, situation comedies with tits and the word fuck. That was really the only thing that differentiated those shows from things that you'd see on ABC or CBS. When the partners approached HBO, they, the idea really was to, to put movies, you know, movie prowess on TV. So they make the deal, they make the first couple, three episodes, there's a screening, uh, the, the press and crew screening. Uh, this is before it goes out on HBO. And the first three episodes, it's, it's Dick Donner's Dig This Cat, he's a real gone, Walter Hill's uh, The Man Who Was Death, and uh, Bob Zemeckis's All Through the, Night, uh, All Through the House. And um, the, uh, what was I saying? The critics. The, the, the critics. Oh, right. So, so, there, so there's, there, there's they, they, the screening happens, and afterwards, a couple of the crew members are sitting, and, and one says, wow, that, that's great TV. And the other guy says, that's not TV, it's HBO. <laughs> In the row ahead are a bunch of HBO executives <laughs> who suddenly realize what their logo is. And that was the day that HBO stopped being TV, and it became HBO. And HBO took that mantle of being not TV, different. And it was really Tales from the Crypt that turned HBO into HBO. So the mandate of getting talented people to come for no money and spend a week fucking around, let's be honest, really that was part of the appeal. We offered some very talented big-name people who get paid a lot of money to do a particular thing, to do something else. Let me, let me share a little secret with you about casting and actors. Uh, I don't know if this is true for Gil, but it's true for me. I've, cast a, I've hired a lot of actors. I've never, ever hired an actor and wanted them to act. Actors have to be. Because the, if you're... If you're on a, on a stage, yeah, you kind of have to act. The guy in the back row can hear and see you, but the camera sees everything, and the camera will see you acting. And so on, for the camera, we need actors to be. And really good actors are very good at being incredibly honest about their emotions. They can, wow, they're amazing. They can kind of push a button somewhere, and suddenly the sadness of, of, of losing someone dear to them is it's playing out in front of you. That's a remarkable skill. It's, and it is a skill, it, it, it's a craft. Uh, this is what I need an actor to be. I'm giving them a different name. I'm giving them some, some words that aren't theirs. But, I, but we need them to be as emotionally honest as themselves, and that's what, that's what plays in a story. That's what we all see. So, um, we... The fact that we, we could get these actors to come in and do stuff they never got to do because no one hired them to do it, that helped. And so the lightning in a bottle came from a thousand different angles because we had, we had feature film producers 
who expected feature film results. We'd fe feature film actors, we'd fe feature film uh, uh, the, the, our DPs, our directors of photography, all of our the people who, who scored it were feature people. So the feature will, world came and plopped itself down on HBO. And really, from that is, what, is where things like Game of Thrones ultimately came from. Now, the world we all live in today, streaming especially, changed the whole dynamic of TV. The whole business is completely in flux. There's a strike on, perhaps you, you've heard. The writer's strike is going to go on probably through the end of the year. We didn't write anything for this thing, by the way. <laughs> Just, we, Anybody from the union out there, we didn't write anything. We did not. We didn't cross any picket lines or anything. The, we'll, we'll, we'll go off on a, a little sideline here for a second. What the, the writers are striking about is the fact that, let's be honest, film and TV are not a writer's medium. They're kind of everyone else's medium. The, the screenplay is a floor plan. But someone else has to put the windows on and the roof and all these other pieces that would make it a functioning structure. But you can't do it without the floor plan. Without the floor plan, it's going to be jerry-rigged crap. So the writer is still essential. Jack Warner, the, who, the head of Warner Brothers, famously referred to writers as schmucks with underwoods. Gil and I were the writing staff on Tales from the Crypt. We were... Again, Tales was, was unlike any show that had happened because of all these things that just fell into one place. And, uh, and then I got more, much more involved with the producing of it than Alan did, so really the writing of it really fell on his shoulders yeah. more than mine because I was so busy running around with, we had all these fancy schmancy directors, all these, you know, Billy Friedkin, uh, uh, John Frankenheimer. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Michael J. Fox. I mean, we had we had uh, Arnold. We we had great directors and great actors, and many of them didn't know how to direct, or they had they knew how to deal with actors, but they didn't know how to deal with special effects, or they didn't know how to deal with camera. And so we we would say to them at the beginning, look, tell us what you feel feel most comfortable with. That's great, but tell us what you feel least comfortable with, because we'll fill in. Hmm. We'll make sure that the visual effects work out. We'll make sure the camera works. We can we can help you a lot. We can embellish this. And so we set an environment for, for, for first-time directors and for seasoned directors to be in a situation where, as producers, we weren't there to condemn them. And up until then, producers would come to the set and go, you've got 10 shots and you've got a half a day. You're never going to make the, the, the day, so I'm going to close you down in, in, in six hours, and you've you got to figure it out. And they would walk away. We took a different position. We said... We're going to help you. You know, we would, a typical situation was uh, we worked with Toby Hooper on a, on a script that we wrote called Dead Weight. And Toby became a really close friend of ours, mainly because of the following. One day, I think it was the second, third day of uh, shooting, uh, we stopped for lunch. And we'd always come down and have lunch with the director and find out how he's feeling, what's he doing, where the problems are. And Toby said, I, I, I don't know what to say to you, Gil. I, I, this is a bad, bad impression of Toby. And, and, and I don't know what to say to you, but, but, but I, I got lost. And I, 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 I'm, I, I have a half a day. I have 10 shots. We're not going to make it. And I said, well, I don't have any money for time. So this is what we're going to do. You're going to finish lunch, lunch. I want you to calm down. I'm going to go upstairs. Alan and I, tell me exactly where you are. And he told me. And I said, OK, I don't want you turning the camera around the other direction. Because that's a relighting re job. That's time. You're going to continue shooting in only this direction. I'll come down in 20 minutes. Al and I will come up with a plan. 
I'll tell you that plan. I might even give you shots of how to get to that so you make the day. If you like that plan, we'll do it. If you don't like the plan, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to go back upstairs. Alan and I will come up with another plan, and I'll come down 20 minutes later after that. And suffice it to say, we have to make our day because even if I wanted to give you more money, I don't have it. So I would go upstairs, and we'd, we came downstairs and said to Toby, where are you? And he goes, I, I owe one, one close-up shot in the other direction. I said, that you can get because that's not a big light job. We'll get that. And then I said, here's, here's the deal. You know the set that we built and we furnished and we lit? We're not going into that set. I'm not mad because I'll use it on another episode. You're going to stay on this set. And he said, but, but Gil, but Gil, where does he hide the pearl? He's got to hide the pearl. He's going into the other room. I said, okay, just calm down and listen. Just let, hear me out and then think about it for 30 seconds before you comment. He doesn't go into the other room. He hides the pearl. He swallows it. And on insert day, which doesn't cost you any money, because we have inserts for different shows, we could do it. You can come in and shoot it, or we could shoot it. I see it as a slow move in on a cadaver, on a slab, and we see a hand come in with a knife, squishy, 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 opens up the body cavity. We're pushing in. A hand comes in and pulls the camera, pulls the pearl out the camera. Cut. And that's how we'll get that shot. But you don't have to worry about shooting it today. And here's a list. I could do this in seven shots. If you like those seven shots, use them. If you don't like those seven shots, throw them out. I don't care. But you can get out of today by doing this. And if you have a better plan for shooting it, by all means do it. But we can get out of the day. And we did. That's exactly how that we got out of that day. And so we would do that every time with these directors. And some of them were, you know, big-time directors. As I said, Billy Freakin and John Frankenheimer. And they would be amazed that we could actually help them and that as producers, we weren't there just to say, well, you've got 10 hours and do whatever you want, but we're going to close you down. But we would actually help them. And that changed, I think, how people viewed us <laughs> and how they wanted to work on the show because they had never experienced that kind of a collaboration. So Tales from the Crypt, you know, we, I think we had a terrific system. We had great people and we were, we were succeeding. And we succeeded so handsomely that Universal Pictures said, hey, you should make three movies. <laughs> and we said, that sounds great. Let's do it. And uh, the first movie that the partners wanted to do was Demon Knight. And Gil was supposed to direct it. But Gil did not want to direct a, what is in essence, a monster movie. We, there was another script that we were toying with that ultimately became dead easy. It was a psychological thriller. Now, Gil and I, well, let's, let's finish with Demonite. At the end, we hired uh, Ernest Dickerson, and Ernest did an amazing job. I mean, that is a classic horror movie. Demonite is fantastic. Hey, look at that head, man. Is that fantastic? <laughs> now is when we should have brought the head in, but yeah. Just, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get it in rewrites. Um, Gil did not want to direct it. I didn't that. want to direct it because it was a sort of a haunted house movie, and I just felt like we, we had found this other script called Dead, uh, Dead Easy. Dead Easy, and it was much more of a thriller as well as a horror movie. And I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's a better step for me as a director and, 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 and for, our, for our careers as writers, we wanted to do that one. And universally said, fine, whatever you guys want to do, fine. And so we 
hired some crew. We went down to New Orleans. We were, we were there scouting. for six weeks. We spent, yeah. six we spent weeks a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and then one day Universal called us and said, stop. We don't want that movie anymore. Come home and we have another plan. We'll tell you about it tomorrow when you're in our offices. So we flew back, and we had no idea what we were really getting ourselves into. We went into the room, and they said, um, here's a script. It's called Bordello of Blood. And you have three weeks to rewrite it, because you need to be shooting in three weeks, because we're not changing the, the release date. date, which they would, always, you know, ch they would always set it up like a year in advance or nine months in advance, and we'd have to make the date. So we came back, and uh, we probably should have said, no, we're not going to do it. Get somebody else. But I had said that already on Demon Knight. And I really felt like I didn't want to. Uh, I, I didn't want to oh, forego no, it, my opportunity. It, it would have been the end. I think that would have been the end of both of us. We would not have worked for the. We would not have done the next season of yeah. Crypt. It would have been. We'd have been off the show completely. Yeah. It, it, it was a, a ludicrous assignment to be handed a script that we'd never seen. That we were going to start shooting in three weeks after rewriting it, casting it. The reason that Bordello of Blood existed as a script had nothing to do with us. Uh, at round about the same time, there was a, a new production company called DreamWorks had just come into, into being. And that was Steven Spielberg. And he, of course, had been in Universal. And so he, though he stayed on the lot, he was no longer part of them. He was his own company. Uh, and DreamWorks, as companies do, they began to set up deals with other talented people. And Universal was desperately afraid that they would lose another piece of talent that, he, that Bob Zemeckis Steve uh, uh, Spielberg was his mentor. They were desperately afraid that they would lose Zemeckis too. So they approached Bob. They said, Bob, look, we love you here at Universal. You've got to stay. Bob, well, what can we do to make you stay? And whatever the rest of the deal was that Bob made, obviously, it was enough to make him stay. A part of the deal, Bob's a very loyal man. He's a great collaborator, extremely loyal, especially to his, his first writing partner, Bob Gale. Now, Bob Gale's a very talented man but he's not the same person as Zemeckis, and he's, he doesn't have the same skill sets. He has not succeeded in the way that Bob has, and Bob has always tried to, to help Gail whenever he could, put a couple of bucks in Gail's pocket. And so he said, hey, if you were to buy the first script that Gail and I ever wrote when we were at USC, it's called Bordello of Blood, give us half a million bucks, that would be a good part of the deal. And so as part of Bob's deal to stay at Universal, Universal bought Bordello of Blood for half a million dollars. And then Universal started thinking, well, hmm, we've just spent half a million bucks on the script. We're just going to throw that money away. Hey, Bob is executive producing a horror movie over here. Well, we don't give a crap about, the, about uh, Dead Easy. They'd spent 50,000 bucks on that. Nothing. They, they would just bury that in our budget. And so they said, hey, instead, you're going to make Bordello of Blood. It's got Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale's name on it. Better than your names on the script. All that was true. And, and they also wanted to punish us. I just think. I just think. And really, that might just be me, though. I don't know. And really and truly, it was nothing to Universal what movie Tales from the Crypt made. It, they really didn't care one way or the other. It was quite cynical. And at the same time, there was something else happening that had a profound impact. And one of our executive producers, Joel Silver, was making a movie in Seattle called Assassins, which starred Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone. And Joel suddenly got it into his head, since we were going to do Bordello, hmm, there was a way to, to placate his star Sylvester Stallone. 
And Stallone got it into his head, since we were now doing this other movie, hey, what if we made it in Vancouver, just across the border from Seattle? Then his girlfriend, and he could visit back and forth, that was the plan. And Joel thought this was a fantastic idea. And of course, hey, why not make Angie Everhart, his girlfriend, the villain of our piece? That's splashy. Now, in Joel's defense, at this same time, there are so many plates spinning in the air. Joel had a film in the can that hadn't, hadn't uh, opened yet called Fair Game. It starred Cindy Crawford, and Joel had it in his head that the next big thing was going to be supermodels starring in movies. And so Cindy Crawford was going to be a star. Angie Everhart, it was a natural. Hey, this would be after Cindy Crawford, Joel was going to be the genius who then, who saw the curve and was anticipating the curve, Cindy and then Angie. And I, so- I was actually hoping that he was thinking about replacing the Crypt Keeper with Angie, but <laughs> I, was, I was wrong. I suspect I totally if we had wrong. had six months to rewrite that script, well. Maybe, but you know what, what just to give you a side story as a director of the movie, mm. Angie would go to Seattle every weekend to see St Stallone. And when she would come back, she would sound like Stallone. So I had a vampire, a supermodel vampire, who sounded like she came from Brooklyn, and she had just gotten out of the ring with Rocky. And so it took me all, all day Monday to get her back to where we were, so we would lose almost the entire day. And she wouldn't hear it. I'd say, Angie, you sound like Rocky. You sound like Stallone. If I wanted Stallone to play the vampire, I would have hired Stallone. And she would say, no, I'm not doing it. No, we didn't. And I knew they were doing line readings, and he was telling her how to do it. And so anyway, that, that's part of our problem when we would. But, but the problem went, was bigger than that, because Stallone, Stallone when, he, when he got his girlfriend onto our movie, he had an ulterior motive. He, yes, she visited him on set for a couple of weeks, but then we would get phone calls from their set asking us to hold Angie. That, you know, could we, could we tell her she had to stay in Vancouver for the weekend so she couldn't visit Sly? And it turned out that he had a piece of action on the side. There's... And it wasn't either of us. No, it wasn't. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a very famous story about Sylvester Stallone. Stallone has never denied this story. The question has always been, on what film set did this occur? Now, all I can tell you is I had never heard this story before about Sylvester Stallone. I heard it for the first time on my set because, yeah, something that I'd heard through, through our front office, that someone had heard they had been talking to the set in Seattle. And apparently it went something like this. So Stallone finishes a scene and he goes back to his trailer unaware of the fact that his lavalier mic is still live and broadcasting to the sound truck. Awaiting him in his trailer is, oh, let's call it a sweet young thing. And Jennifer Flowers. No, no. <laughs> and she begins to give him head. And apparently his thing is, yeah, stroke the shaft, cup the balls. That's stroke the shaft, cup the balls. Well, suddenly it's broadcasting back to the sound card. And suddenly, people are gathering around the sound card. They're listening to, yeah, stroke the shaft, cup the balls. Yeah, yeah, stroke the shaft, cup the balls. 
The next day, Stallone arrives on the set and everyone is wearing t-shirts that say, stroke the shaft, cup the balls. I would pay dearly <laughs> for one of those fucking shirts. If we could only write like that. You know. <laughs> okay, so two-thirds of the way through our shoot, Stallone breaks up with Angie. And we are left with an actress we wouldn't have hired to begin with when, when we were doing the casting initially. Gil and I, you know, the villain is really important. In Demon Knight, I think one of the things that makes Demon Knight incredibly successful is Billy Zane. Billy Zane is fucking awesome in that movie. He's, he, he owns it. Well, hey, if you cast, if you miscast Freddy Krueger, you're going to get a bomb too. You know, you, yeah, you, you got to cast it just right. And we wanted Robin Givens. Yeah. Now, Robin, our understanding was not an easy personality, but that was nothing does. We worked for Joel Silver. <laughs> nothing. We specialize in difficult personalities. So uh, I, I, think, I, I think Robin, you know, Bordello of Blood was never going to be Demon Knight. I don't think it, 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 just, it just could never have been. It, it just wasn't, it, it didn't have it in, in its bones. But I think Robin Givens would have made a much better villain than Angie. That's my gut. The, the next actor that we, we had no choice in was Dennis Miller. We could not tell you to this day why, why Joel insisted on Dennis Miller. It is one of the biggest mysteries. Well, I think like Joel wanting to use a, a model, he thought, oh, Dennis is a comedy show on HBO. Uh, he's a stand-up comic. Oh, that'll be the next big thing, stand-up comics. But our audience had no interest in Dennis. No interest. That, was not our, that was not our audience's idea of, of a comedian. Right. Uh, so it, 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 it missed on that count. Now, Dennis, to his credit, he's a very, he is a very funny man. He's a very talented man, but he's not a happy person. Uh, I'll be fair. Nobody in comedy is happy. That's why you go into comedy. You're a miserable son of a bitch. <laughs> but Dennis is especially miserable, and his... The first day that he uh, uh, arrived on our set was on a, a Monday. We usually, we always started shooting on Thursdays. One of the things that Gil as a producer always did was to start shooting on a Thursday. Because then you get two days under your belly if you got a big problem. You got the weekend, you can fix the script, do whatever you got to do. If it's the script or whatever it is, you can replace someone, fix something. And by Monday, you should be rolling right along. And, and then we added, added to that, that the difference between shooting on Wednesday and Thursday, since everybody was already being on, on the payroll, was the meal. Mm. So we would tell the studio we would start on a Thursday and we would steal Wednesday, because Wednesday had no cost except the caterer. And the studio couldn't figure that out. They, never, they, they kept saying, well, he's starting on Thursday. And the people who knew said, no, no, he's gonna start on Wednesday. And they go, no, 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 he told us, we have a, we have a call sheet, it's for Thursday. You know, and we lied. We, we started on Wednesday because we could get an extra day for the cost of the meal. And that's what we did on all the shows I did mm. from that episode, from that movie to all the movies I've done in the past. I always would start on a Thursday and steal Wednesday. So, so Dennis shows up on a Monday in the parking lot of the Orange, a strip club where we were shooting on location. And, you know, this was a script. We had three weeks to rewrite it. This, it's a student movie. It was a student script. It was two, Bob, Bob Gale and Bob Z wrote it when they were students. Well, hey, they became hey, back to the future. But not when they were film school students. They weren't those guys yet. And, and back, you know, uh, Bordello of Blood read like a, a student movie. And uh, certainly, 
the, the character that Dennis played, he's a small town private eye. Well, let's do a little logic here. How much business can a private eye do in a small town? Not much. He's not logical. He doesn't, he's not a realistic character. He, he, he can't be. So right off the bat, I don't, know how, I don't know how to write for this character because he doesn't make any sense to me. I, 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 you can't write jokes for a character that doesn't make any sense. It's going to be generic. That's all you can ever do with a, a generic character. So, all right, so we knew that the script we were handing Dennis, revised as it was, it wasn't filled with, with comedic gems. It wasn't. It was, it was the script we were going to shoot with. And so I hand a professional comedian a script filled with his dialogue, and Dennis flips it open, he turns to his first line of dialogue, he points at it, and he says, I can't say that. I'm not going to say that. He says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'll, you know, I'll look at the script, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try to get it all in, and uh, I'm going to make up all my stuff. And that was the end of it. There was nothing we were going to say to, you know, he was going to do what he was going to do. He was our star. And so Dennis improvised every one of his lines every single day. Now, that was good for Dennis. It was kind of hard on the other actors he was working with because his dialogue and their dialogue didn't necessarily jive. And it drove the editor crazy and drove me crazy in the editing room. Whole piece of, of, of information that needed to get into the script right. that, needed, that he needed to say, he never said. And so <laughs> the whole big chunks of information that you kind of need just for storytelling, they never get there. The... The other actors, of course, found it problematic. Now, Dennis at that time was doing his show for HBO, and they rehearsed Thursday, shot Friday, so when we started the show, we hired our crew saying a regular work week, Monday to Friday, but Dennis's schedule made that impossible. So our work, our work week became Saturday to Wednesday. It's not the deal our Canadian crew made. And you know, they're, they have this weird idea about uh, working to live, whereas down here we live to work. We have it completely backwards. Well, they didn't want to spend their weekends with us. They we had to renegotiate that whole relationship and that whole... And nobody was happy about that. Well, okay, so the crew was not happy with Dennis, and then Dennis would, would, would come to us and he'd say, you know, you know, I'm really tired. Well, he would come to me because Dennis Gil was directing... And he would send his assistant to me first thing in the morning. She'd say, Dennis, it's really tired. Said, Can we shoot him out early, send him back to his hotel so we could sleep? And I'd say, okay. And so every day, we would shoot Dennis' side of the scene. And the actors would, you know, all the other actors would play their scenes to Dennis. And then lunch, and Dennis would go back to the hotel. We'd turn around and shoot the other side, relight, shoot the other side. And the, all the other actors would be doing their side to the script supervisor trying to read what she scrawled of Dennis's improvs in the margins of the script. And so that's what she's reading while the actors, all the other actors, are doing their lines. And so it's just a chaotic mess of, and of course this is incredibly disrespectful to all the other actors that you never show up. The other thing I should say at this point before we go into questions is throughout this experience, now you get a sense and the flavor of what we were going through, I never went through therapy. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and this is therapy. 
Right. So we so, should probably get a little bit on to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also we, have some questions. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I know we, you know, if, if you get us in a room together, we just go on and on about, on and on about whatever comes into our heads. Um, do, do you want to go to questions? Do you, do, I think, you have any you, questions? Do you all have any questions, stuff you want to ask? Because yeah, go ahead. Let's go in that direction. Thank you. Uh, I don't think I needed one, but thanks. Uh, you said you wanted Robin Gibbons to play the female lead. Who did you want instead of Dennis Miller? Uh, Danny Baldwin. Yeah. Uh, Two-part yeah, question. Um, I wondered what were the biggest differences between the Gale and Zemeckis draft of Bordello and then what was rewritten prior to shooting? M more, typing. <laughs> more typing. More typing. say everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, my second question is, you know, I've always wondered, is Zemeckis, do you look at him at, at all as a villain in this? Because no. it was, because I've heard he's a wonderful collaborator, mm -hmm. but it was that script and that deal that kind of forced this film upon you. And how do you reconcile that with he had He had nothing to do with, it, it was Universal made the decision to, to make us make Bordello. It was not a Bob, when Bob Z made his deal to stay at Universal, and that was one of the, the deal points, had nothing to do with us. We had a great relationship, and we still do with Bob. Oh, he's wonderful. Love him. We wrote all the tales from the crypts that he directed, except for one, and that was before we got there that he had directed it. So he really loved us writing for him and working with him, and that collaboration was just very special. No, in, in, in fact, one of the few bright spots, I guess you could call it that, of Bordello was watching Bob edit a sequence that we never shot. And it, there's, 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 a, there's the suggestion that there's a, a, a sexual relationship between uh, Erica's character and Angie's character. There's, there's a, a real clear impression of that. We never shot anything like that. Bob cobbled that together with bits and pieces of stuff we'd shot with one pickup of a body cross in front of camera. Just to, we we to tried to have a conversation about that with uh, Angie and with Erica, but you can imagine how that might have went. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Erica was not interested. It was, not interested. You know, the, the thing about Angie is, and I, I think Angie did the best she possibly could. It was not a fair ask. You can't hire someone who's not experienced at something and expect them to deliver, you know, first-rate work. It's, it's just not a, a, a fair ask. The same thing happened with our special effects up, up in Vancouver doing Bordello. We decided... Okay, why did we do, why did we shoot Bordello of Blood in Vancouver? We shot Bordello of Blood in Vancouver because one of the other things that was always a constant with Joel was our relationship with the IA, the union that represented our crew. Tales from the Crypt always shot non-union but with a union crew. You know, we had a, a certain deal. Uh, sometimes the union was in a superior position and sometimes we were in a superior position. For a long stretch, the union was in the superior position. And they, we had done a, a TV movie for Fox called Weird World, and our union struck us, and they shut us down. And Joel was really angry, and so his, his attitude was, fuck me, no, fuck you. And when the opportunity came to do Bordello, he decided we weren't going to shoot it in Los Angeles. And the nearest place that had, you know, that was production capable was Vancouver. Now, at the time, Vancouver was, was you know, a production, an active production town, but it wasn't what it is now. The other problem with going up to Vancouver was that we were shooting a horror movie, 
and again, we didn't change our dates because of our release schedule. So we went to Vancouver simply because we were starting the movie in three weeks, and that's the location we chose to shoot it in. We shot it in July in Vancouver. We're a horror movie. Our stock in trade is dark, nighttime. One thing you don't get a whole lot of when you're that far north in July is night and dark. So we'd be shooting in a glass cathedral. If you've seen the movie, there's a glass cathedral. And I'd be looking up and going, uh, why, why is it getting light? I mean, we've been shooting for five hours. We were supposed to shoot a 12 or 13 hour day. And then they would come over and say, well, you only have like three, three more hours. And that was, our la that was our last, that was, that was our climax. Shooting the climax, yeah. we had one night. Yeah. Now, when we, when we, one of the reasons that we thought Vancouver was going to work for us was because we found that glass uh, structure. It was uh, an exhibition hall. It was, uh, uh, it was, what was it, uh, Vancouver, I forget what it was called, but it's not even there anymore. It's been torn down. But we saw, we thought, well, that's great because in the script, we'd written a glass church. But, okay, now we're shooting in Vancouver in July. If we had, been, if we had really thought about it, which we did not, we'd have gone, guys, think about this. Glass church, climax, July, one night, glass church, sky, see the sky. But it never occurred to us until we were pretty much there. And really, we, we walked into that last night knowing we probably were not likely to get it. Uh, Todd Masters kind of begged us, don't shoot, don't shoot it, then we'll be stuck with, with whatever we shoot there, trying to match to that. But we were always between, never mind a rock and a hard place, that would have been a good place to be. Uh, so, you know, we were... When we got to, to, again, hell, not to shoot a movie, we got to the climax of our horror movie and had no time to shoot it because we shot in a glass church that far north. I started the movie. I had long red hair and a big red beard. And then this happened. <laughs> so it uh, gives you an idea of what we went through emotionally. When we got to the end of the movie, that's funny, when, when I remember Dennis's last shot, and he finished, and usually, you know, there's applause, and everyone, we're rapping Dennis out, hey, man, and, and it's great. That didn't happen for Dennis. I, I don't think, I don't think the, the crew minded seeing him go. The rest of the actors didn't mind seeing him go, and he approached you. Yeah, Dennis came over to me, and he said, thank you so much, and what you would expect him to say, and I was like, I, I just can't wait to get you out of here on a plane to anywhere. And, to the and Marianas he, Trench. Yeah, and he said to me, he said, you know, uh, I forgot his wife's name, but if my wife and I invite you up to uh, your Santa wife. Santa Barbara. To Santa Barbara for dinner, you're going to come, right? I said, I don't think so. And he said, <laughs> he said no, no, don't be, don't be funny. I'm the funny guy. Don't be funny. You, you'll come, won't you? And I said, no, Dennis, I'm not, no, we're not coming. My wife and I wouldn't come up and see you in, not only wouldn't we come up and see you in Santa Barbara, if you're in L.A. and you brought takeout food to our house, <laughs> You can sit outside on the lawn and eat it yourself. <laughs> Nothing. And, and that's how it ended. And then he sort of looked at me strangely and walked away, and that was the end of it. I didn't see him again until we did ADR in the studio. By the time we were done, uh, and our Canadian crew tested us, we didn't treat them well, and by the time we were done, they were done with us. The rap party was at, at uh, Colleen Neistat's house, and uh, she invited the Americans, but I'm the only one who showed up. Uh, and... They all looked at me like, why did you come here? <laughs> Our crew, yeah, I, I got hired a bunch of years later. I was a co-executive producer on a show called The Outer Limits 
for Showtime that they shot up in Vancouver. And this was, this was about five years after Bordello, and people still remembered it. Our, there were people on our crew, no one on our crew had worked on Bordello, but they knew people who had, and there were stories still being <laughs> circulated in Vancouver about the assholes, the, the American assholes. But, but the coda to the story, in a sad kind of way, I think, was uh, my career continued on with Joel Silver making a bunch of movies together for Warner Brothers for a few years after that. I mean, you would think that that would have ended the relationship, um, but oddly enough, it didn't. Now, Mike, now I think I do need therapy. <laughs> well, after Bordello broke up, and now, now Gil and I then, in the aftermath of, of Bordello of Blood, shortly thereafter, uh, you know, various things happened. We'll, we'll truncate this. We, we parted ways, and uh, we really didn't talk to each other for 20 years. I think we had lunch once. Yeah. Lunch once. Uh, and then this. And as I said, it, it's funny. We, we've kind of picked up in a lot of ways right where we left off. And I mentioned earlier that among the things that, well, we're trying to recapture lightning in a bottle. And I think that the project, you know, people keep asking us, you know, tales from the crypt, tales from the crypt, tales from the crypt. Why don't you bring it back? Why don't yeah. you bring it back? And it's, there, there are such complications with the rights and the legality of it between Joel and the estate. And the estate came to me one time years ago and said, we want you to do it because you and your, my dad had a great relationship and you were always respectful of the material with Alan, and, and we'd like you guys to do it, but, and we have the rights. And so we said, well, maybe. And then they found out that they really didn't have the rights, that Joel still had certain rights, and they had certain rights. They hate each other. It'll never happen. It, it, it came down to the Crypt Keeper. The Crypt Keeper in the EC Comics is a white guy with straight, stringy hair. Kevin Yeager created a completely different character. And so the IP, the intellectual property that is the, crypt, the, the EC Comics, is one thing, and the Crypt Keeper is an independent, completely different piece of IP owned by Joel Silver. And but, so, but based on the fact that people are constantly asking us, crypt, tells them the Crypt, tells them the Crypt, we then, when we got together to do the podcast, started talking about, well, what happens if we created a show that in spirit was like Tales from the Crypt? Had the Crypt Keeper's spirit. Yeah. You could sense him somewhere in there laughing. And, and was scary, and was funny. Funny especially, dark, dark comedy. So we're working on a project, and we'll, and the, way, the whole way that we're approaching it is, is very, very different because the TV world is different. The project is called Are You Afraid? And it's about flesh-eating ghouls. And... Who have a sense of humor, of course. <laughs> well, it, it's, it really, it's about you are who you eat. I guess. I, what we want to do is a show that asks the question in, in, a, in times as crazy as these, is it really so bad to want to be the monster? What if, what if the monster reflected a kind of empowerment? Here, here's a, a, a thing that, that, that put this idea into our heads. Up until fairly recently, I had never been to a horror, conf uh, a horror fest. I just, I'd never gotten around to it. And I went to a creepy con uh, in in LA a couple, couple of months, about six months ago, a year ago. And what blew me away was nobody, everyone dresses up as Freddy, Leatherface, no one ever dresses up as the victims. No one identifies with the victims at all. Everyone identifies with the monsters. 
because the monsters are empowered. And I think part of what all of, of horror fandom is about is empowerment. And people who do the cosplay, it's a very empowering thing. The empowerment is, is such an important part of it. It's, it's not, yes, to be scared, but to walk away empowered in a way by, by the whole experience. Well, we want to take that and build that into this show. And so really the question that we're asking, what if being the monster is a logical response? And so it's a show about fear. If you can overcome your fear, in essence, you become the monster. And it's not necessarily a terrible thing. And so what we wanted, like I said, this is it's called Are You Afraid? It's about flesh-eating ghouls. And uh, we have a... a we're, we're gonna take this show out into the world in, in a way that's never been done before. Normally what you do is you, uh, you write a script, you, you, you write a whole, about 50 pages of, of what's called a Bible. It's the whole world, the whole, beyond that first script, what's this show gonna be? Every other episode, season two, season three, season four, who are all the characters, everything about them? You, you write everything. And then you walk into a room with a bunch of guys in suits, women in suits, people in suits, just suits, sitting there on the on hangers, and you try to sell them your idea. Well, what if we do it differently? Because here's a funny thing. This is a true fact. When, when you cast these days, and you have a choice between two actors, you know which actor you'll choose? The one who has the, the, the better social media presence. Because they'll bring eyeballs to it. That is the way an awful lot of the business is going to get run. It's, it's through social, the pressure of social media, the audience that social media can bring to a project. So what Gil and I are, what we want to do with this project is to take it out to you first, the audience. We want, to, we want the audience, yeah, we, we, want, we want to, in essence, uh, sell it to you, but tell it to you. We want, we want to share everything about this idea, except for some important details that would ruin the surprise, some surprises, but we want, we want to create the world in advance of walking it into an office with a bunch of people with suits. We want, we want our audience to want it before we take it in. And so this is a whole new way of doing business. We, we're created, we have a website that we, we've created. It's called, well, the show is called Are You Afraid? And it's uh, HTTP. Areyouafraid.com, separated by dashes, r-u-afraid.com. That's our website. And we're going to begin to build the world in this website, a sense of what this TV show is. And so we invite you to, to, to sample our website. We're adding new material to it. We're, we're building the world that we want this TV show to be. And the goal is, again, this is going to take time. This is, we're reinventing the wheel here. That, hey, there's a writer strike going on. It's going to go on until the end of the year. And so in the meantime, we're going to, we're going to create a show, not for the people in, with suits, but for you all. And our goal is, if, if our audience wants this show, then we'll take it in and we'll go make it. And so uh, the empowerment is the audiences, and that's even the way we want to do this show is all about you. Because and we think that's really the future. That's really how shows are going to get made in the future. Because and, and at the end of the day, we're nothing without you. We, 
the content creators and the consumers, this is a, a very, hey, we need each other. And uh, creators are consumers. We're all the same. We're, we're really, we're all in this together. And we couldn't be happier. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. I have one small short answer question that I, I wanted to ask you guys. How long has it been since you were physically in each other's presence before this, this weekend? We saw each other once a couple of weeks ago we've, in, LA. in L.A. Gil, Gil's been living in Vancouver. Um, and of course, yeah, getting down, you haven't gotten down too often. You got down a couple of weeks ago, but you, you were staying so far outside of town right. that it was, just, it was just impossible to get to. Just because the schedule is, is so booked doing the podcast, it, it just takes up a lot of time. But we visited uh, Mike Vosberg. Remember, every time we did a cover on Tales from the Crypt, there was always a, a Tales from the Crypt cover. Those are all drawn by a really talented comic book artist named Mike Vosberg. And uh, as part of the, uh, our Are You Afraid project, Mike Vosberg is doing some of our concept art. And it's really terrific. And so we were visiting with Mike to, to see it. And so because, you know, it just gave us a chance to actually see each other. So for the first time in pretty much 20, 25 years, we... And so this is only the second time, really, that we've had a chance to, to hang out. I, 25 I years, so guys. That's amazing. We are so grateful to have you here. You, have, you haven't changed a bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I was a little concerned when you said, oh, here's the Crypt Keeper. What is Gil getting here? <laughs> That's fantastic. Right after this, we have a memorabilia signing right across the hall in the Crutchfield room. Please make your way over there. We're going to get them set up. We're going to take some photos of them first, and then we'll uh, let you guys in when we're ready for that. Uh, we do have more Tales from the Crypt, uh, Gil and Al content coming to you. We've got the Dead Easy live script read, which is coming this week. And uh, we also have the, what am I forgetting? The Bordello commentary. They recorded a brand new commentary track for Bordello of Blood just for little old us. And guys, it rips. You gotta go check it out. Do you hear that? They'd never watched the movie together before. It's like a therapy session. It's fantastic. Go it's, it's better than the commentary that's on the shout release. I'm just going to say that. All right, anyway, um, give let's couch. give it up for them again. Give a couch I could lie down on. Oh, no. I think so. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Talk about the mother. That'd be fine. All right, thank you so much for coming. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. And see you next The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.